You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Alyssa Hurst. I was living in Baltimore in January 2017, and I remember driving by Penn Station on the day of that very first Women's March and seeing just an endless line of pink literally circling around the block with folks trying to catch a train to D.C. Millions of people ended up marching that day across the country for women's rights, making it the largest protest in U.S. history. And since then, it seemed like women have been having this really powerful moment. This past weekend marked the fourth Women's March, and that got me wondering what kind of tangible change all of the signs and speeches and chants have actually made. So I asked Marie Berry. She's a professor and political sociologist who works from an international studies framework. Her research focuses on civil resistance everywhere from Brazil to Bosnia, but she's also a self-described scholar activist, feminist, and an enthusiastic supporter of the Women's March. So welcome. Thank you so much. What kind of impacts have we seen so far, especially here in the United States and on American politics? Well, certainly there's been a sustained um, engagement in um, in issues of, of asserting women's rights, but also I think of resisting the Trump administration's policies more generally. And of course, the 2017 Women's March was just was massive. Right. And so we've seen, while we've seen some sort of decline in, in the number of people actually turning out to the marches in the subsequent two marches in 2018 and 2019, I think we still did see a very vibrant and robust um, uh, movement in the streets. But I think the the impacts of the Women's March are, are felt much more broadly than actually in the streets that day. We, um, we saw many of the same uh, nodes or, or sort of local organizing chapters for the Women's March converting into um, to, uh, chapters for the kind of mobilizing around the, uh, the midterm elections. And I think we saw a lot of indivisible chapters springing up out of the same networks that had been involved in actually uh, organizing and planning the, the women's marches. So we, I, I'm, I'm really um, actually quite uh, amazed, I think, at, at the type of uh, impacts we can see from the marches. I think beyond generating solidarity and beyond actually creating a, an environment in the United States that was really kind of um, uh, dynamic and vibrant. Um, the Women's March really uh, has, has, has led to the, um, to the emergence, I think, of, or it's, it's, led to, it's led to a couple different things. I mean, I think it's, it's led to a, a conversation around intersectionality at the mainstream, yeah. um, the importance of looking at race and class and ability and immigration status and 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 so many other categories of difference alongside gender mm-hmm. has been something that the women's march i think really uh, played it an integral role in 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 actually shepherding um, to the mainstream of political discourse and then of course also we've seen i think the the emergence of really strong female candidates for for political office across yeah. the board at all levels of government and and many of that is linked to the momentum around around the march but also around Hillary Clinton's loss and then around the kind of rising um, vi- visibility of of um, misogyny and of and of uh, violence and kind of um, harassment against women um, in the U.S. So 
Yeah. I look forward to see what this what this fourth March uh, does as we lead into the to the 2020 election. So can you talk about whether or not the Women's March has had any kind of reverberating effect outside of the U.S.? Has it made a difference worldwide, too? Absolutely. I think that we the Women's March came um, happened really on the eve of this of this period of widespread people power mobilization that we're seeing really in its peak right now. I mean, you know, from Lebanon to Hong Kong to uh, Chile to so many other places that are that are currently, as we sit and as we speak, um, have people in the streets mobilizing, not just for women's rights, but for democracy and human rights more broadly. And of course, women's rights is part of that. And so, um, yes, I think we see tremendous uh, um, uh, links um, from the Women's March here to to global women's marches. Of course, there were women's marches all over the world in, in 2017. But but it's I think that in some ways they the the march um, and and the sheer sheer scale of the march helped really remind people of what's possible when we claim our democracy back and claim our rights and claim our our um, our seat at the table and um, I don't think you know I, I think thinking about the women's march in as it is kind of in in um, in line with so many other people power movements across the globe is is really how to think about it. Yeah, that's great. So can you you mentioned in that first part of the conversation that politics have changed, that more women have organized and gotten into politics specifically because of the Women's March? What is the mechanism there? How did the Women's March actually put people into office? That's a great question. I mean, I think that 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 it did not actually put people directly into office, but what it did do is create networks of people that were committed ideologically um, and really practically towards resisting the Trump agenda and also to resisting the kind of um, encroachment of conservative populist politics in in their local contexts. And so we see women who were, you know, very very inspired by the the. Kind of tremendous outpouring of of solidarity um, running for political office. We see um, some of the same uh, groups that were in charge of organizing the women's march, then converting into these these groups that were really uh, trying to kind of swing left. These progressive blue um, uh, d- different organizations. I mean, there's a bunch of organizations that have been involved with trying to get women into political office, both running for Congress, uh, running for you know city council, running for governor, and I think that we. See see the um, the the kind of not just the momentum but also the actual st- the organizational structures that were formed as part of that women's march coalition um, really really doing a tremendous amount of work during the midterm elections in particular and I think that they will continue to do really important work in getting um, female candidates and getting progressive candidates uh, elected in the 2020 elections sure are there any people that you could point to in particular that that came from this? Well, I think um, I that's a great question, actually. And I think, you know, I, of course, we we talk about the squad and, and <laughs> people like that that have um, have really risen to a position of visibility. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as being kind of really an, um, really a, a household name these days and, and known really widely. I mean, I don't th- this is, you know, her her campaign is not directly linked towards the Women's March necessarily, but it absolutely was linked to the to kind of the the campaign that that frankly um, in in the 2016 election was was less 
a less linked to the Hillary Clinton campaign, but was actually more linked to the Sanders campaign. And that type of um, grassroots organizing, the small sort of door-to-door, um, really, really decentralized and deinstitutionalized kind of community organizing strategies that that campaign put into practice were, were, were very, very linked towards the, the, the success of candidates like AOC um, in the midterm elections. And I think, um, you know, depending on, on, on where you're looking, we see, we see similar, um, similar successes uh, of people coming out of that more progressive bent of the Democratic Party. If we look at the way in which the Democratic Party, I think, has has typically strategized its its elections, a lot of a lot of those same actors, those same organizations that are kind of doing that more uh, mobilizing work, were very involved in mobilizing people in the women's sure. march. And so I think, in some ways, a lot of these things are all linked. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a it's an important I think shift and an important tactic uh, for for especially kind of progressive candidates on the left to be looking at you know that community level engagement and and mobilizing among the 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 people rather than kind of these big ad campaigns and and you know those those really resource uh, uh, resource demanding campaigns that that have required so much uh, investment from from large super PACs and so forth um, thus far so. Um, yeah, I think we're going to see um, a continuation of that type of, of mobilizing in the 2020 elections. So what is the, I think I kind of know what your answer to this one will be, but what is there value in repeating these marches and doing it every year, even though the attendance is going to drop, probably you can't match that first year. So what's the value in repeating it? Do they get stale? Is it actually really, really useful and important? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think... There's a few ways that we can think about its value. I mean, I think if we look at the at the 2017 march, the value was certainly in an expression of collective grief, anger, and frustration over the way that that election went. And I think the solidarity gained by people that participated in that march was something that will last um, some people, not everybody, of course. And I think um, it was actually alienating for some people who attended the marches. But, um, you know, I think that that solidarity and that felt that that felt sense of shared kind of community outrage um, is is really powerful for reminding us of our democ- our democratic responsibility, you know, and our responsibility to actually foreground issues of women's rights and and the rights of the most vulnerable in our politics. This is not an issue of a kind of political, um, you know, um, politics on paper. This is lived experiences that people have, and I think the Women's March really reminded people of of the consequences of our app the consequences of our our lack of engagement and so I, I really think that that first and foremost um, the the solidarity gained by being uh, at such an event is, is can be really powerful and I think that 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 is something that also can require and, and, and can benefit from an annual kind of reminder. Um, and then s- secondly, I mean, I think especially if we look back to that to that 2017 March, the the it, it, Movements are not spontaneous. They're rarely spontaneous, I should say. And so often we we see these kind of outpourings of people in the streets and we think, wow, this was social media that that mobilized everybody there. And that can can happen, right? That can be true. But more often than not, there are some sort of structure, some sort of organizing body, some sort of um, leadership behind the scenes that is making decisions about 
about lots of different parts of what that event is going to look like. And, you know, with 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 something on the same on the scale of the 2017 Women's March, we need there was a tremendous amount of labor and, and that went in and thought that went into the really about nine weeks mm-hmm. um, of planning uh, that march between the, the the actual election in November and the march in January. We had um, Carmen Perez, one of the the national co-chairs of the Women's March out here to the University of Denver a couple years ago, and she really talked about the the tremendous sort of work that it was to bring hundreds of, of community-based organizations, uh, women's groups and not, to, to into into some sort of um, uh, kind of coordination uh, and 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 um, and some sort of agreement on on what the march would actually prioritize and what the march would look like, and those 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 structures that become established as a result of that event don't necessarily dissipate the second that event is over. They can be repurposed. They can those networks can then say, hey, let's let's actually mobilize for this particular cause. We see these networks being essential, right? When we have just organizations that are that are kind of involved in immigrant rights focused on these issues, their their platform exists, but it's not as expansive as if they're able to kind of build coalitions with with organizations and with leaders that are working also on and, and climate crisis. They're working also on uh, women's rights and reproductive rights that are also working on, I mean, you name it, any right. sort of issue. And so I think that that, that we sh- I, I, I am a believer in these in these these marches as a way of also reminding us of our, our connections and the connections between our various causes and kind of specific issues we might work on on a day-to-day basis. Um, we, I think, can actually try to drive a, a broader movement forward in a way that will actually result in the in the in, in the ultimate goal which is uh, I think a, a free and and fair and open democratic society where where every single human being is free from oppression and mm-hmm. free from um, harm you mentioned this a little bit earlier but here in America we've had me too we've had the women's March we've seen women rise up in politics so obviously women are kind of having a moment right now. And that's not just a local thing either. So is this new or are we just starting to pay attention? Right. Well, I think in some ways women are having a moment, but women are also being uh, facing unprecedented uh, an onslaught of, of, of harm and of, of, of threats to their rights, to our rights. Um, and I think a, a backlash in many ways, not just in the United States, but across the world towards the gains women have made in recent decades in terms of rights and in terms of representation. Um, absolutely, the 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 last few years has seen sort of I think in some ways an unearthing of a lot of the uh, conversations that have so for so long been buried and have been happening behind closed doors. I mean, when Me Too started, I think the the recognition of so many people that their harassment and that their experiences in the workplace was not was not a, was not a random kind of one off event. It was something that is is system is systematic. This I mean I think is in some ways the is, is just so deeply horrifying and I think 
um, we we can we can celebrate in some ways that the expression and the outpouring and the sense of solidarity and and recognition that this is something that's that's a real profound issue while at the same time recognizing that we elected a president who is has has so many so many people out alleging sexual harassment sexual assault i think it's it's a really troubling moment too because um, even with this, the Women's March, even with the the kind of recognition of all of the harms that are gendered harms in this in our society and more broadly, um, women are still subjected to a, a tremendous amount of inequality, mm-hmm. right? And and tremendous amounts of violence. I mean, reproductive rights have never been so threatened right. as to right now. And I mean, I see the I see this these limitations and restrictions on reproductive rights as a form of state violence against women. And I just I think that we live in a in a in an incredibly kind of fraught moment when we see when we can celebrate kind of the visibility of of you know yes we have the highest number of women in in our, in our legislature in our part in our congress that we've ever had that's great but at the same time exactly right. exactly so even i mean here in america women can go to a march a lot of women can take a day off of work and go to a march and they can do that without worrying about any kind of real tangible scary repercussions that's not necessarily true in other parts of the world so can we talk about what kind of advantages American women have when they go out to march versus women in other countries and maybe what we can learn from these overseas sisters? Absolutely. I mean, I think we 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 you know, we live in a in a democracy, although a democracy that is being challenged. Sure. And um, there is a, a a freedom of of assembly, you know, and there's a freedom of 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 speech and of taking to the streets and being able to actually do so in a way that doesn't necessarily make one f- afraid um, for for brutality. And I'll ju- but I'll I'll note too that I think that this is very. Um, this is a this is a sense of security that tends to not be shared by every woman or every woman in America, right? I sure. think women of color, women from from um, from other marginalized communities, that there is no sense of there is no kind of presumption of security when taking to the streets in a movement. Um, you know, there's a there's a fear of, of of violence from all angles, from from the state, from the police, um, from from the community, um, and so. You know, in some ways, I think that the struggles that American women uh, face and the insecurity is actually more similar sometimes to the struggles of, of women in other places in the world than yeah. we than we kind of choose and that's to. It's important for people to know. Absolutely, and I think it's especially important for for white people to yeah. really recognize and and white able bodied people to really recognize our own um, kind of assumptions of that protection is a, is a privilege, and uh, not everybody shares that. Um, you know, I was in Uganda a couple of weeks ago, and there were students that were protesting at Makerere University um, uh, there about uh, some some fee hikes that were happening at the university and the the brutal crackdown from police against these largely female demonstrators um, was really a, a reminder to me of the 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 way in which it's especially in this current global political moment there is a tremendous risk associated with standing up for your rights 
And um, across the globe right now, we're seeing violent backlashes against many of these people power movements. I mean, Mm -hmm. these movements are gaining traction. They're gaining concessions. They're actually changing narratives and conversations in each of their respective places. You know, for instance, in in Latin America, there's been a swell of of kind of indigenous protests of of people claiming and demanding rights that have actually been met with concessions from the government. Um, um, Same thing, I mean, some concessions in in Hong Kong, concessions in Lebanon. I mean, there, there are some of these victories, but they've come at a tremendous price. In Sudan, for instance, in a place that had a a really woman-led people power movement topple the regime of Omar al-Bashir just last summer. We also see tremendous amounts of sexual violence being directed at these protesters, and so remi- I think reminding um, reminding all of us of of the of the gosh the, the I mean the commendable bravery and 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 courage it takes in so many of these repressive under these repressive conditions for for protesters to actually stand up and, and demand. We in the United States can reflect both on our, our our privilege, but also I think it's a it's a it, it's important for us to reflect on. Um, uh, who's able to protest? Who's mm-hmm. able to take a, a day off work? And it's certainly not that, that this is not that's that's a privilege to be able to do. And Absolutely. I think that's important. Yeah. Right. So zooming back into the U.S. a bit, um, you've talked to me in the past about the history of women's movements in the U.S. and and this this is not the first one by a long shot. So can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the ways that women have organized in the U.S. in the past? Maybe ones people don't necessarily know about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll admit that it's not my area of of expertise by any means. But, um, you know, we're coming up this year on um, on a few major anniversaries. And I think one of them is the is the hundred years of of suffrage in the United States. And so this is a, a reminder, I think, of the of the of the organizing that that was done by women in the early 20th century around, you know, in, in ensuring, uh, you know, women had access to vote and white women in particular. Um, full voting rights, of course, were not extended to mm-hmm. African American women for for several decades more, um, and then even then, informal barriers remained in terms of people actually accessing uh, the ballot box. When I when I think about the suffragist movement, actually, I, what I what I what I really love uh, kind of in tandem to that is the way in which it, it also was a peace movement. I mean, mm-hmm. not not all of that movement was, but there were there were factions that were very, very linked towards women's groups in, in Germany and in France and in, in the UK during World War II. Interesting. And then WILF, the Women's International League for Peace right. and Freedom, is the oldest sort of women's peace organization, celebrated its 100th anniversary a couple years ago. Um, and this was, this was because during World War II, there were women actually demanding these conferences um, and and these and these uh, basically issuing lists of demands, all linked towards stopping the the violence, and women were were, were joining together from from across you know these the, the the enemy lines, if you will, the German women joining together with French women and, mm-hmm. and American women and British women, and actually convening at conferences it, uh, during the war while the war was war was going on. Interesting, and I think that this you know that's a very Western example of one. Um, of one way that women throughout history have, in contexts of tremendous violence and and war, found ways oftentimes to set aside the kind of political divisions and find shared humanity across across lines um, around around issues of peace, around issues of of um, of ending war. And women's peace movements in the United States and elsewhere across the world are oftentimes standing in solidarity with each other and with history in terms of the way they they I think hold up an ideal of 
of a kind of a, a more of a pacifist ideal, an ideal that this world um, is, you know, is 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 harmed every time there is there is militarism, there is a military engagement, there is um, violence, there is there is death. So you mentioned sort of these things that are real strengths among women who are organizing and have been for a long time. Can you talk about maybe some of the tools that women bring to the table that aren't necessarily there if they're not? Mm. Well, I think so often and in so many of the movements that I've been working with across the globe and been fortunate to be able to interview activists and people that have participated in these movements, I think one of the things that comes out is that, um, you know, to 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 successfully mobilize a large number of people to actually uh, demand, you know, make demands on their government, make demands on um, different, you know, corporations and other institutions, it requires a, a broad cross section of society. And so, when women are not in the movement, I mean, it just doesn't represent society. It's right. not. It's like all of our needs and all of our kind of demands are just simply not not reflected or, or present. I've also, I mean, I. There, there are so many um, examples of um, women uh, being being really key, and I and I, I'll say that it's not just women, right? Men, right. men too, of but course. but women are are you know oftentimes key in trying to maintain nonviolent discipline when these movements um, take to the streets. I think I was interviewing um, some activists from Venezuela recently who were involved with the anti Maduro protests in Venezuela. And they were talking about groups of women who sing these these traditional Venezuelan songs at some of these movements, especially nearby to youth groups at the movements that tend to be more prone to violence. Mm. And if there's sort of a tension or a, a sense of, of, of worry that the crowd is going to start kind of getting restless oh, or, wow. or aggressive, they'll start singing. And the sing, they sing these songs and it's sort of a way of saying, look, like this is this is our history. We need to be in this together and also calm down, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I, and I think that's just one example. Um, my, my work in Bosnia has brought me into so many uh, spaces with activists, Bosnian women who take to the streets every month or sometimes every week to demand information about the whereabouts of their loved ones whose bodies have never been discovered after the violence. And these women, you know, have mobilized in so many ways around their shared grief as mothers who have lost mm -hmm. sons, who have lost husbands who've lost fathers who've lost other loved ones in in the in the conflict which was you know at this point um you know more than two decades ago and the 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 kind of shared ability to mobilize around this grief in a very non-political way i think has been one of the one of the real strengths of that of that movement and and it takes inspiration from movements um like las madres de la plaza de mayo in in argentina who in you know starting in the 70s and then into the 80s and, and still today every i believe it's every thursday las madres still take to the wow. plaza de mayo in um in, in in buenos aires and they still carry pictures of their of their families of their kids that were disappeared during argentina's dirty war and that sort of um i think that that in some ways there's this um strategic essentialism that many women's groups and mothers groups in particular uh, do where they strategically say like <laughs> we're women and we are actually not demanding not something that's highly contentious or political we're demanding knowledge about our kids you know there's 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 nobody in the world 
world who can fault us for that, who can fault us for, for, for wanting to know what happened. Did they suffer? Where can we bury them? You know, all of these questions that when unanswered, I think just really prevent them from ever having a sense of peace. Um, and, and, you know, so I think, again, sometimes that strategic essentialization of, of, of gender, of, of women's roles as caregiving, as mothers, as, as, um, as those that are less political than men, I think, has, has benefited many movements over the years as a tactic, as a strategy. Um, although I, I always uh, maintain a, sli a slight bit of caution in talking about that, I think, because, you know, it's, 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 it's not to say that... Um, I, I think it's not to say that women are less political. I of think course. oftentimes that grief is very political, right? Um, and not always less violent also. Absolutely, absolutely, right? There's there's so many examples of, of, of women as, as as champions of war, as proponents of violence. And I think we, we, we lose some of that when we kind of talk about women's um, inherently more peaceful nature. Um, but I do think it can serve as a really powerful mobilizing um, theme right. um, for, for a lot of these movements. Yeah. Is there any data out there that supports the fact that when women are involved, movements are more successful? Is that something that's that's proven? Yeah. So that's actually the, the, the there's there's a tremendous amount of research that's that's just coming out, really really um, uh, strengthening some of these 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 claims. Um, and research by uh, my former colleague here, Erica Chenoweth, who's now at the the Harvard Kennedy School, has has really shown this to be the case. Um, we are also running a project here at the University of Denver, um, which uses uh, photographs taken at, at mass protest events to really look at the gender ratio of the crowd over the duration of the movement. And this is additional data that I think will help us better um, uh, tease out the, the, the importance of women's involvement and, and kind of the, um, the, the way in which women's involvement it doesn't only matter for movement success, but may also matter for movements not turning violent mm. um, during the course of the campaign. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll be releasing some of those findings uh, early next year. Um, but but the, the kind of one of the main, you know, simple sort of findings that is always, that is really, um, was advanced by Erica Chenoweth, but also um, Maria Steffen, who's sure. at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Their book, Why Civil Resistance Works, showed how um, when you bring a, a broad cross-section of the population together, movements are more likely to succeed. And of course, women are essential to that to that, to that, um, the sheer number of people that show up in one of these movements. Wonderful. So we've talked about this a little bit, but do you consider yourself an activist? Obviously, you're a scholar, you research activism, but you also march sometimes. Is, is that activism? Absolutely. I mean, my my activism is certainly not limited to marching. Of course. Um, but I, I, I consider myself deeply to be a scholar activist. And what that means is that my my scholarship is is perhaps sometimes inspired in its focus by a political commitment towards, for me, a, a kind of a feminist approach to pursuing, uh, to, to fighting for for the rights and emancipation of all human beings from any form of harm, right? As, as sort of my, my value commitment to the work that I do. But the challenge is that that value commitment can't shape the science and the social right. science that I do and the data I collect, and it can't it can't bias the 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 type of analyses that I that I conduct on the data I connect right. So that I that I collect, I should say. 
So for me, being a scholar activist requires in some ways doing doing two separate things that then have a shared <laughs> sort of uh, merger at the end. So doing the research that's that's as objective and rigorous as possible while maintaining a political commitment and doing work perhaps separate from the research that that's very, you know, focused on these goals of of um, of of really, you know, trying to make the world a less harmful place. And then what what happens, I think, effectively for those of us who who wear that hat as a scholar activist is that our our data, our, our findings, then really becomes the currency that informs the research, right? <laughs> right. Or that informs the advocacy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so at the Inclusive Global Leadership Initiative here at the University of Denver, I mean, I'm so proud of the fact that what we do every year is we take evidence-based strategies for waging effective nonviolent movements for social change, and we put them in the hands of activists, you know, because they then take that those findings, those best practices, those ideas, and they can use them in their own campaigns, in their own context. And so we are our research has has gotten into the hands of, of activists, you know, from from Colombia, from Togo, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Uganda, from Nigeria, from Ukraine, from Russia, from Thailand. Um, I mean, all across the globe, from Nepal, from Pakistan, from India. Mm-hmm. And I think that these, you know, these activists are then able to do the work that they do more effectively because of the of the of the rigor of of the research that that we conduct as 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 um, as academics. But but certainly for my own my own you know, reflection, I wouldn't be in this job if I didn't of want course. to, you know, make a difference. Yeah, in some way, work yeah. towards a more just world. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, that's really the goal. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Marie Berry's work with women activists through the Inclusive Global Leadership Initiative, check out our show notes at du.edu slash radio ed. I'm Alyssa Hurst, today's host and Radio Ed's executive producer. James Swearingen produced our theme music. Aaron Pendergast did our sound mixing. And Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. This is Radio Ed.